to 20. Starting from verse 13. Moses and Eliezer the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? And this is the key verse for us. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who, was, who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. In camp, outside the camp, seven days, whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. So far, in connection to what we just read, let's sing. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God. As response to the gospel after the sermon, we'll sing hymn 52, stanza 1, 4, and 5. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in a war, physical attacks are not the only form of warfare. Some might be faced with warfare in the form of sexual temptation. That has been the history of war, and that's what happened also during the Korean War. North Korea, for example, set up loudspeakers which blasted messages trying to seduce South Korean soldiers to defect South Korea and join North Korea. A young female voice would say something like this, and now I translate and paraphrase. Hello, dear brothers. I am an 18-year-old girl, girl born in the People's Democratic Republic of Korea, the paradise on earth. 
My heart is filled with hatred against the U.S. and the president of South Korea because I heard that our dear brothers are dying as human shields in their hands. Dear brothers, if you continue to fight, what else is there than to meet your own death? It's not too late. Kill your superiors who are your enemies and come to North Korea as a hero. We will get married and live in this paradise happily ever after. If you come over, I am willing to do anything for you as early as tonight. I can't, I can't wait to dream sweet dreams in your bosom. I love you. I look forward to seeing you. Come over quickly. The message that those loudspeakers blasted contained both the promise of avoiding pain and death, the promise of, of honor, glory, and experiencing pleasure. And something similar was happening to the church of Pergamum. Satan was attacking that church with both persecution and sexual immorality. In that context, Christ exhorts his church faced with Satan's warfare, which is the theme. Christ exhorts his church faced with Satan's warfare. We'll consider two points. First, he gives, Christ gives encouragement for persecution. And second, he gives warnings against sexual immorality. We'll first focus on Christ's encouragement for persecution. And we'll begin by placing this encouragement in its context. In verse 12, we read that this letter was sent to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Where was Pergamum? As historical background, this is what a commentator wrote about Pergamum. Pergamum was the northernmost of the seven cities that received the revelation. It was also the capital of the Roman province of Asia, so it was politically stronger than the rest of the cities that received the letter in the book of Revelation. In that context, in that political context, Christ describes himself in this way in verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now the reference to the two sharp two-edged sword would have reminded the members of the church of Pergamum of the Roman authority. Because the Roman authority was often symbolized with the imagery of the sword. For example, the Romans used the expression, the right to the sword. If someone had the right to the sword, if someone like the, the governors of the province, the proconsuls as they were called, had, were given the right to the sword, that meant that they even had the power to put people to death. And perhaps that's how Antipas, that is, which is who's mentioned in verse 13, was killed. At least the tradition suggests so. It was those, it was to those, it was those who were under and the, under the power, overpowering Roman authority and those who lived under that Roman authority that Christ reminded who actually has authority. It's not Rome that has the sword. It is Christ who has the, two, the sharp two-edged sword. Christ reminds the church that he has authority 
not only over the church, but over the whole world, since the image of the sword represents physical power. With that picture of Christ, let's move on to the body of the letter. See that the church of Pergamum is described to be under the realm of Satan himself. See verse 13. Christ says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What kind of a place was Pergamum that Christ calls it the location of Satan's throne? The previously mentioned commentator writes, Pergamum was the leading religious center of Asia. The temples and shrines, with temples and shrines dedicated to Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. A great 40-foot-high altar to Zeus situated on a terrace at the top of of a mountain overlooked the city. Pergamum was the first city allowed to erect a temple to Augustus Caesar in AD 29. And it had three temples, making it the core of the imperial cult. Here, the opposition to Christians who refused to participate in Roman religion was especially intense. Imagine how life would have been in Pergamum. I'm not sure if even this church building is 40 feet high. There was a 40-foot high, 40-feet altar dedicated to Zeus. And who knows how many sacrifices would have been offered. Think about the conflict, the persecution, the suffering that I explained last time when I preached on the church of Smyrna. To the people who are living in such circumstances, Christ gives encouragement. And the first encouragement is the one that Christ repeatedly gives to the seven churches. It's that he knows. He knows that Pergamum is located where Satan's dominion is strongest. He knows that Pergamum was located where being faithful was difficult and that faithfulness came with persecution. That's why he wrote, yet. He says, yet. He talks about where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. And so he acknowledges and he commends that the fact that the service, his servants were faithful. And we can also note and tell from this text that Christ takes note of our suffering. As the psalmist wrote, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And you can tell that Christ is watching his saints from his heavenly heights. As we see in verse 13, he remembers his saints by name. He mentions Antipas by name. And moreover, notice that Christ describes Antipas as his faithful witness. He says, my faithful witness in verse 13. Faithful witness. Does that sound familiar? At the beginning of most church services, 
you would have heard this greeting, grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. What does that tell us? What that shows is that those who hold fast to Christ's name and are faithful to Christ become like Christ. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, and Antipas has been transformed into a faithful witness. Antipas, a human being with all its frailties and weaknesses, just like the rest of us, faithfully endured suffering and persecution. And that's only because Christ renewed him by his Holy Spirit to be his image. As we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. By becoming like Christ, Antipas withstood Satan himself. By being like Christ, that was possible because that is exactly what Christ did on his entire life on this earth and on the cross. So Antipas remained faithful even to death. See, Christ's decisive victory on the cross has lasting impact for the believers, even in the heart of Satan's realm. Even where Satan's throne is, Christ wins. No one can snatch believers out of Christ's hand. Christ preserves Christians to be faithful to the end. And see the supremacy of Christ highlighted in verse 13 as the verse contrasts between Christ, contrasts Christ and Satan. And let me read verse 13 again. I know where, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. The church of Pergamum was in the territory of Satan, but Satan had no control over them. Do you see who has the sharp two-edged sword? Do you see who has power? There is a church of Jesus Christ where Satan's throne is. There are those who hold onto the name of Christ living under the throne of Satan. Under the throne of Satan were those who did not deny faith in Christ. Where Satan dwells, Christ's faithful witnesses existed. And to understand the significance of this, let's, let's think about this in an opposite scenario. Let's think about where God dwells, where God's majestic throne is, heaven. After Christ defeated Satan on the cross, do you think that there could be any worshipers of Satan where God dwells? Not a chance. The dragon has been cast down. There is no hint of darkness where God dwells. In fact, it's God is so bright, he's so radiant that there's no need for a sun. See, there is a church in Pergamum where Satan's throne is. Who holds the sword? The church of Christ in a dark world serves 
as evidence as Christ of Christ's power. Why does that matter to you and me? Dear congregation, the scripture tells us that Satan is the prince of the world. And given everything that's going on in the world, around the world, perhaps the only appropriate, the only logical response is fear. For example, terrifying things are going around in this world right now. We live in a culture with movements that they want to silence voices, any voice that does not agree with the liberal agenda. And the liberal agenda and the worldview contains views that are mutually exclusive with Christianity. And this is happening way too close to home. I think about the bill, bill C6 that was mentioned last week and that is described in the bulletin. For example, fines and imprisonments for preachers, for counselors, for parents don't seem to be far off. In this context, have you ever wondered how am I going to be faithful unto death? Lord, will my faith be strong enough to withstand all the pressure, threats, negative consequences, perhaps even torture and death as, as, the, as the members of Church of Pergamum experienced? Does that ever make you anxious? It's true that there is no way we can fight Satan on our own. But the gospel is that we don't have to. When we hold fast to the name of Christ, then we will be able to withstand Satan. Christ, he will make him, make us like him, make you like him, a faithful witness, just as he did with Antipas. He will supply you with strength and increase your faith as it is needed by his Spirit. So hold fast to his name and do not deny his faith. Do not fear. Christ is the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Let's now move on to the second point, Christ's warning against sexual immorality. As I was saying, many of the members of, of the Church of Pergamum were faithful, but there were some who were not. There were some who fell into sexual immorality. That's how sad it is when this happens, when, when men and women who have worked for the kingdom of God fall into sexual immorality. The members of the church of Pergamon bought into the false teachings of Balaam. We read this in verse 14. Christ says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. We read about this in our reading. The summary of the teaching of Balaam can be found in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to, 12, 1 to 2. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And we read in number 31 that, in fact, Balaam was behind this idea. Based on these passages, we can conclude that the teaching of Balaam is, is practicing idolatry and sexual immorality. As we read in, in Numbers, this teaching was indeed a stumbling block for the people of Israel because on that day, God sends a plague which kills 24,000 people. In our text in Pergamon, we find that the same teaching was taught by those who were called as the Nicolaitans. They taught that it was okay to participate in pagan feasts where food was sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. We read this in verse 15. After describing the teachings of Balaam, Christ said, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the teaching of the Nicolaitans are the teaching is the teaching of Balaam. And whatever the Nicolaitans were teaching, it must have been quite convincing and deceptive. It must have been a convincing and a deceptive teaching for Christians to think that it was okay for them to part- practice idolatry and sexual immorality. Perhaps their teaching went something like this. We all sin in some way. We can't be sinless. But if you had to pick one sin, overall being sexually fulfilled or active makes you a better Christian because being sexually fulfilled has a lot of benefits, even if it's outside of marriage. Perhaps it's integral to being human I don't know if that's exactly or precisely what the Nicolaitans taught. But I know that's the view of the culture that we live in. And perhaps that's how some of you think and act today. Underlying such thought is a dangerous assumption. It is the idea that sexual fulfillment is absolutely necessary. If you want to be fulfilled as a human being, you must be sexually fulfilled and active. It is the elevation of sexual fulfillment above anything else. It is the message that makes you feel that if you are not sexually fulfilled, you're not living life as it is meant to be, to its fullest. fullest. This message is conveyed implicitly and explicitly explicitly in a lot of songs which hint that sex is the best thing and continues to mention it. And quite often there are movies where, where casual sex is treated as some sort of rite of passage to adulthood. But we have to ask, is, is sexual fulfillment the best thing in the world? Are you not really living if you're not sexually fulfilled? If that is the case, Christianity seems so oppressive because Christianity permits sex only within marriage. So people think that Christianity is oppressing all those who are not in a marriage. Christianity is preventing people from living a full life, from being fulfilled, and from being happy. It's as if Christianity is not giving 
even a chance to all those people to be fully human. Perhaps that's how you feel being Christian. You just can't understand how it is that you could live without being sexually fulfilled. You've chosen a sexually immoral path outside of marriage and or within. You need to repent. That's in verse 16. Therefore, repent, Christ says. What's surprising about this call to repentance is that this, this is given to the whole church. In the original language, repent is directed towards the whole church of Pergamum. That includes both who were practicing sexual immorality and those who were not. Both must repent. How? Especially, how are those who are not practicing sexual immorality supposed to repent? By exercising discipline. There are three kinds of discipline. First, there is self-discipline. Second, mutual discipline. Third, official discipline. Let's go through them in order. First, self-discipline. If you are practicing sexual immorality, if you're tempted to discipline yourself, see that the word discipline has association with discipling and learning. So teach yourself. Ask yourself whether sexual fulfillment, sexual being sexually active is the thing that fulfills a person's life. Just think about people who are considered to be sexually fulfilled according to worldly standards. Perhaps think about the lives of celebrities. Are they content? Are they living life to its fullest? Perhaps, but not really. So many of them lead a sad life. In fact, in some cases, their lives are broken due to the fact that they are sexually fulfilled in a worldly sense. While in no way do we, should we approve of their lifestyles, we should have some compassion with, on them. Because although they are in some sense promoters of, the, of that message, they were also victims of that message. They had probably bought into the message of the world that sexual fulfillment is the most fulfilling thing in this world which led them to, to pursue a promiscuous lifestyle. When they have attained a sexually active life, they didn't receive what they were promised. They weren't fulfilled. Then comes a sad realization that they have reached the ultimate pleasure that the world has to offer. And there's nothing else to it, despite their lives being miserable, empty, and broken. Beloved, don't buy into that lie. There is something much better than sex. What does God teach us? Learn. Discipline yourself. Second, let's move on to mutual discipline. Those who are not practicing sexual immorality must help their brothers and sisters through mutual discipline. 
warn each other of sexual immorality and encourage each other to live pure lives since it seems, especially with sexual sins, it's very difficult or even impossible to fight against such sin alone. Hold each other accountable. Help each other out. Exercise mutual discipline. And thirdly, official discipline. If it is necessary, office bearers must exercise official discipline in order to save a brother or a sister, especially in light of what's coming next in the text. Christ says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Right? Christ himself will come and war against the, those brothers and sisters who practice sexual immorality. Remember that Christ is the one who holds the sharp double-edged sword. And notice that the sword comes from his mouth. That means that is because Christ is so powerful that he doesn't even have to wield the sword. A word, a word of judgment will be enough to bring eternal destruction for those who practice sexual immorality. Brothers and sisters, think about how serious this warning is. If Christ, who died for sinners, the only person who can save comes to wage war against them, what hope do they have? So repent. Exercise self-discipline, mutual discipline, and official discipline. But what about our sexual desires. Is that something that simply needs to be repressed and suppressed? Thankfully, God instituted marriage so that we could be sexually fulfilled. Sexuality and sex is a gift. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be beautiful. But even then, don't expect sex to be the best thing in your life or that sex will make your life, make you live life to the fullest or take away all its problems. That expectation can cause a lot of problems simply because it's not true. Though marriage is a huge blessing, it's not where you will be ultimately fulfilled. In fact, marriage, marriage is beautiful partly because it is a picture of something that will ultimately fulfill us. There is something that would ultimately and fully fulfill our desire for intimacy. The problem is not that we have a longing for intimacy, nor is it the problem that our longing for intimacy is strong. The problem is that we look to wrong places to fulfill our longing for intimacy. Our longing for intimacy will only be fulfilled in Christ. Think about the Garden of Eden. We were created to live in God's presence. We weren't meant to be separated from God. The presence of God, God himself, is the only way we will be fulfilled. 
That's why Christ promises fellowship with himself. He invites those who conquer to dine with him. He says in verse 17, To those who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. The hidden manna refers to the marriage, marriage supper of the Lamb. And we know that because Christ also promises to give the white stone. The white stone was a, a white marble used as an admission ticket. So the hidden manna refers to the food that they will be given at the, at the feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And that means we don't have to look for anywhere else or to the food of the, given to the idols to satisfy us. Christ himself will satisfy us with the most delicious food. It will be food that will be infinitely tastier than what we taste on this earth. It's a food that will sustain us eternally. And over such food, and part, by partaking in such food, we will have fellowship. So we don't have to look anywhere else for intimacy either. How do you think we'll be at the marriage feast of the Lamb? Do you think we'll be guests at the marriage feast? We, in fact, will participate as the bride of Christ. What this passage shows is that Christ is promising the ultimate communion and union with himself. Think about that. Any marriage, however perfect that is, pales in comparison to the union between Christ and his bride, the church. The love that Christ has for his church is incomparable to anything else in this world. Christ and his bride is literally the match made in heaven. And think about how Christ loves his church. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the glorious gospel. Christ gave himself up for his bride. Christ loved the church, even though she wasn't holy, before she was holy. He loves her first, then makes her holy. And think about what that means to you. And the same truth is captured in our text. Like those who hold fast are not only invited to the marriage supper, they're given a white stone, as I've mentioned, which again is, is a marble, a piece of marble, a white marble that is used as an admission ticket. And when you receive the admission ticket, that white stone, notice that there will be a new name written on it. That's at the end of our passage. I will give them a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That new name is just for you. And this new name will be the description, will capture your new identity. Why does Christ do that? Christ gives you 
the new name, the new identity, perhaps because you might feel inadequate to be at his wedding supper. It's like a story where someone commits a crime or someone experiences something horrible, goes to a small rural town, takes a, and they, they take, usually take a new name, a different name. Right? That is to leave the past behind, to, to start over. People in real life do that as well. Perhaps you might know someone like that. In heaven, you will be given a new name, a new identity. Your past or your present will not follow you around or hound you, whatever you have done. Now that's associated with your new old name, your old identity, but you'll be given a new name. You can move on from your past. You can start over. You'll be given a new name and a new identity. And that's a message you and I desperately need to hear because all of us are sexually broken and immoral in some way. It seems like sexual sin influences us, our perception and identity. There's, there's something more damaging about sexual sin. And when we're caught up, caught up in sexual sins as a perpetrator or as a victim, Satan attacks us. He tells us that we are worthless, that we're broken, dirty, unlovable, that no one will love you if they knew who you truly were. And that's certainly not true when it comes to Christ. He loves us, and he will give you a new name, a new identity, Imagine how glorious our new identity will be. We don't know how we will be exactly as John writes. He writes this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John says, we will be like him. We will be like Christ. We will be pure, righteous, and perfect like Christ. That's another reason why we need a new name, because our current names will not be able to hold, convey the glory of our new identity. On that day, Christ will present us as his bride, pure, spotless, beautiful, holy, bride at this triumphant wedding feast. So even though we are under Satan's attack, bombarded with threats and temptations as it was with the North Korean speakers, by faith live, brothers and sisters, live in the reality that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom who holds the two sharp-edged sword for the good of his church, his beloved soon-to-be bride. Amen.